For the next couple of months, I'm going to try to basically structure about a 20-minute sermon that's very kid-friendly, or at least as kid-friendly as I can make it, because um, we're not going to have kids' class for probably a couple of months. And saying that, I want to confess that my memory's not as accurate as it should be. I have said in the past, you know, Jim and I, by God's grace, we do okay. Five kids, four from out of the home, and I'm thankful for all everyone's done. But when I look back, we really didn't do devotions very well. And Jana pointed out, no, it was you that didn't do devotions very well. It was Jana did pretty well. And then I did the math, and I've done the math a couple of times. I have to do it. But frankly, I'm not a night person, so kids are falling down, going to sleep, and I'm like, oh, yeah, go to sleep. God bless you. I fall asleep. That's the nighttime rhythm. And with five kids, we did 22,000 diapers. And if you have a bunch of kids, you probably know that number. You probably don't want to be reminded of it, but it's overwhelming with little kids for some time. What I did think that I might have done well, and you'll see me doing this, is I'm going to preach the way I father and the way I grandfather, which is tell stories and quiz. So I'm going to kind of do four review questions. We've got a smaller group here. I might just give the answer if nobody has it. I'm not even going to say you have to be a kid to answer it. But first question review, who was James' brother? Anyone know? Yes. Jesus. Yes, we got it. Well done. Okay, second question, when did James believe in Jesus? When did that happen? I feel like yeah, after Jesus died and he rose again. Yes. I feel like I'm the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off right now. And you guys are probably don't even know who this, who this movie is. But if we're going to talk even about what is the most important thing we should know in the Bible, it's a word called the gospel, meaning good news. And that's a big thing to get our brain around. But when Paul has to say this is what the gospel is, he talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And James himself did believe in that until it happened. That's when the gospel took on, on his life. Third question, what city did James live in and serve as a church leader? After he believed in Jesus, he became a church leader. Do you know what city he lived in? He's alive. He's alive, yep. You know what city his brother lived in? Did he live in Bismarck? Jamestown, Chicago. I heard somebody say Jerusalem. I don't know who said it, but that was true. James lived in Jerusalem. Okay, here's the toughest question of the four. The early church had some controversy. They settled it with a conference called the Jerusalem Conference. They figured out how do we take all these cultures of the Jews and help Gentiles who are believers in Jesus live. What chapter in the book of Acts has the Jerusalem conference? Fifteen. Fifteen. Did, you, did the Maxwell kids get that? Uh, Brian and Natalie, did you coach them through that, or did they know that? Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I was going, I, I'm trying not to be harsh, but I was really surprised at first service. If anyone knew the answer, they could tell it. I thought everybody knows that 15 is the Jerusalem. Oh, well. So those are things. Here, here's what I want you to know for today, and then I'm going to come back next week and review this. And I'll ask some questions. When James writes his letter, it's kind of 
say today, it's like getting an email with an attachment that's about 4,000 words. It's like, oh, not overwhelming, but I wish it was smaller, but I better sit down and read it. That's what it is, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He starts off with the second thing of his, his introduction to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. And I'm going to give you just a little bit. For those that would have received this 2,000 years ago, they would have known this, but I want to review it. And then I'm going to quiz kids on it next week. Here's the history of these 12 tribes. First, there was a man named Jacob, and his name gets changed to Israel as life goes on, and he has 12 sons. Those 12 sons get married, they have kids, their kids get married and have kids. 400 years later, they move from a really big family, kind of like if us and the Maxwells and the Withams all got together, that's what our family would look like. They move from one big family there's so many people you call the nation of Israel and you break down each one of these sons' families into a tribe. A couple hundred years later, they are a nation that's in what's called the Promised Land. Today we call it the Palestine region. And the ten tribes that are to the north rebel and start their own country called Israel. The two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, call themselves Judah. They divide. Then all of these empires arise and because the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah aren't following God, they go into exile. They're conquered. Israel's conquered by Assyria. Then Judah falls to Babylon and goes into exile. And then the thing about being an empire, you really don't want to be an empire beyond just playing a game. Because empires are always defeated by another empire. It's not all that stable if you're going to live for generations. Babylon is defeated by Persia. Persia is defeated by Greece. Greece is defeated by Rome. And as these 12 tribes are scattered, the people practically pick up the languages, the cultures, the economy, the literature of all these empires. So you get Jewish people who still believe in Yahweh God, who once a week gather with a group of at least 10 other families called synagogues and listen to God's word being taught. They become very loyal to God's word, but they become very culturally diverse. The practical thing that that does is after Jesus rises from the dead and his apostles and missionaries go out and start planting churches, there's millions of people who understand a few details about Yahweh God, enough that they'll go to the synagogue every week. And when they understand that means Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, they can talk in all these languages and spread the gospel. You've got a missionary force prepared. Now, kids, question. In fact, I'll give it for everybody because we've got great kids here, but there's not like four of you in the room. If you could ask God for anything, what would you ask God for? Anything. Tell me. Jesus, okay, Big E, Jesus. Anything besides Jesus? God. Okay. I'll, I'll be candid here. My back hurts. My knees hurt sometimes. I've had four surgeries on my back, and I bet my dad's had a knee replaced. I bet I'm going to have to have my knee replaced someday. If I could ask God for anything, the first thing I said is, give me a new spine, give me new knees. Anything you guys would ask for? Money, yeah! I'm glad you said that, because that's one of the first things that pops up. Anything else? Okay, I'm going to tell a story. You got another one? Treasure. 
there was a young man named Solomon. The story I'm going to talk about is in 1 Kings chapter 3. And again, I'm trying to keep time short, so you guys can go home and read it. I'll just give you some. Solomon's dad is a man named King David who has a heart like God. When King David dies, he had all these sons. One of the younger sons, Solomon, becomes king. Now, one of the first things that Solomon does when he becomes king is he goes up to a high place. It kind of be like if you were to get out of Bismarck. Church gets over and you start driving west and you see one of these really high places in North Dakota and you say, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to walk up there and I'm going to speak to God. That's what Solomon does. He gets up high where he can have a big view. And it says he worships him. He pours his heart out to God. And one of these moments that doesn't happen often, God comes and discloses himself to Solomon in dream and says, you ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Now, some of us would ask for money. I would ask for a new spine or new knees. Some people would say, well, there's bullies at school. Could you just kind of stomp on them for me, God? Some would say, let me be, somebody's got a lot of status. Let me have a, be popular. Solomon here sees God and says, yes, I'm really God. This nation is really God. There's a lot of people here that I don't have to work for. It's more than I can do. God can do this. God speaks to Solomon and says, because you didn't ask for money or help, a long life, or to see your enemies crushed, I'm going to give you wisdom. And he explains a little more. It's going to be a discerning heart so you can tell what's right and wrong. So you can empathize with the people and know what their lives are like. And not only am I going to do that, God says, I'm going to give you wealth, and I'm going to give you status, and you're going to have victory. And you're going to have a season of peace through your whole life if you will only follow me. That's an element of the gospel. That all of us have to come to God recognizing this world is bigger than me. I can't make it on my own. I need to hunger for God. And he puts things in my heart that are things that could never arise by my own. Kids, this word wisdom, here's some definitions in the dictionary. It means the ability to use your knowledge and experience to make good decisions and judgments. The ability to discern inner qualities and relationships, common sense. My kids have used the term, you're street smart. You know how to take ordinary things and make them applicable. You can live with people and get along and build good things into their life. Now, the reason I want to tell that story of Solomon is James was written to a group of Jewish Christians, and the first things that would have come into their mind when James is discussing wisdom is the story of Solomon. It's one of the defining stories of wisdom in the Old Testament. Here's the text we're going to read today. Can you guys stand up? I'm going to read this. It's in James chapter 3, 13 to 18. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done with gentleness that comes from wisdom. If you, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual demons. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. For wisdom
love his fruits pure, then peace loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate them. Please be seated. Okay, I'm going to sum up what I think is happening here. James is writing this book like an attached email. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's writing when the church has gone through about a 20 to 30 year period of time trying to figure out what do we do with Jewish culture, faith in Jesus, new culture. He's very, very practical and he writes in a very Jewish style. Here's a little section where he gives another thing about wisdom. Now, how do we know that someone is wise? And I, I came up with a list of three looking at James. First, he says they do good things. You can see somebody's wise when they're practical, when they're helpful, when they're like the neighbor who's watching all of his other neighbors and notices that there's something that's just out of place. Around. You know, if I walk out of my door and pick up a shovel and help somebody shovel the snow, or if they come to church a bit early and they make sure that things get picked up, or they stay a bit late and they make sure things get picked up. It's that practical person. That's wisdom. They're gentle. A wise person doesn't need to raise his voice. He doesn't need to dominate the conversation. He's content to sit in the background and ask questions and draw the group's consensus. They're seasoned. They're experienced. They've seen a lot of life, and when they do start talking, they have a lot of stories because they've seen lots of things. Now, the sad thing is there can come times where a community just doesn't have wisdom. And James describes that. He says when that happens, people are jealous of one another. They can't celebrate other's success. They've got to tear each other down to build themselves up. And frankly, I hate to say this, but if you go home today and you turn on a news station that's a news station, you're going to observe that. That's how our country, from my, from my perspective, seems to be functioning. Wise people aren't like that. They celebrate others' success. And they're the type of person that's, you know, they might pick up a newspaper and they say, well, who's had a good game in our local community? And you're going to cheer for your local athletes. You're going to cheer for your local businesses. You go on Facebook and you're thinking, what are the good things I'm seeing out there that are happening to my people? And I congratulate them every time I see something good happening. Leaders that in these situations, they use don't they, who are without wisdom, they will use loud words to make themselves the hero of the story. That's what happens when communities fall into that place. And James says the source of that, it's like animal instincts. And you guys live in North Dakota, you're familiar with animals, and you've seen times where animals behave in a way that Maybe I can even think of a real practical. Have you ever seen a mean dog be even meaner to another dog? That's what it's like in a community that has no wisdom. It's that ruthless grabbing and tearing. James will even say it's beyond this dark side of our created order. It's demons influencing how we think, feel, and act. And it will result in a community full of conflict, disorder, and you want to know what wisdom looks like? James describes it. It's pure. It's refined by testing. And an illustration I think people would have been thinking of is this is in the season where you have metal is formed by somebody who's a blacksmith who lives in your community who will take raw stones and get them hot and turn them into metal. It's refined by testing, by hot 
and by, by hot temperatures. Wisdom seeks out peace instead of conflict. It's trying to constantly think, how can I get along with everybody and how can I help everybody else get along? I don't take any pride in my conflict. It's gentle. It's a strength that's managed in such a way that you don't realize how much strength is there. And when strength comes, it comes to help. And many times you're kind of shocked of, wow, I didn't realize this person had so much to offer because they've always got a bit in the background and they haven't made a big deal. And all of a sudden, something comes up and you realize, this person carries great strength. I told a story, and I'll tell it again in first service. My, my dad, and I hope he'll get up here to visit us. Now that we're at stage green, maybe he'll come and visit. And he's probably my most frequent sermon illustration in my family. My dad talks about his brother-in-law, Wally. I called him my Uncle Wally. And my dad will describe him as physically the strongest, but one of the most gentle men he ever knew. And we'll describe Wally as being a very wise man. He was a farmer who was a soldier when he was young and saw a lot of life, and then he just gently left. And then he rarely raised his voice. A couple of years ago, my dad had a relative that passed away. My brothers and I was a relative of Wally's, and my brothers and I went with my dad to his relative's funeral. And there was an old man in the reception that my dad looked at and said, that's Wally's younger brother. He was even stronger than Wally. And my dad was 78, and this gentleman was like in his mid-90s. And my dad said, well, you know what? I'm as big as he is. What happened? And the, my brother's going to kick my dad and say, Dad, you're 78. He's in his 90s. He should be stooped over. You've grown up, Dad. And he's got an old. Then my brothers pointed out and said, but look at him, Dad. You can look at that man's hands. And even though his body is stooped over, you can look at his hands and see that those hands could move a lot of weight. They're still big. And watch that man sit down. And even though he's stooped over and he moves slow, when he sits down at a table and starts eating, other people start sitting around him. They want to be with him. He's still wise. You know, this is what wisdom looks like. It doesn't have to have all these illusions of power. It's the strength of character that has lived through things and has a strength that has led a community. And even as the physical strength is declining, the wisdom is still there. It gets along with people. It's gracious and forgiving. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. When something goes wrong, it's the first one to say, I'm just going to forget about it and keep this thing moving. We've got to be God's people. It doesn't have to be the hero of the story. And I had a colleague in Chicago named Robin Hackett. And Robin pointed out something to me that I thought was really insightful. She said, if you ever want to influence people and tell a story to do it, one of the best ways to do it is start the story with the phrase, let me tell you about a big mistake. And it's interesting when you start telling a story where you're acknowledging you're not the one who's the hero. How quickly everyone's quiet and starts listening. And remember that, that is basically the story of the world. It's the story of all of these individuals and all of these communities. And the only one who gets to be the hero of any story in the Bible is Jesus the Son. Every other
our triune God, Father, sending His Son, having the Holy Spirit living in us. That's the hero. It produces good fruit. One of those fruits is wisdom and nourishes our community. Final assignment. And the saying is, I'm going to teach you a little bit like the way I father and grandfather. Some point today, this week, if you have little kids, I guarantee you that they will give you somewhere between 10 seconds and 10 minutes where they're really listening to you. Not long. I know it could be chaotic, but they'll give you a little bit of time where they're really listening. When that happens, ask them this question. How do we grow this time? And see what Bible story, maybe you'll tell a little bit of your life. And you're all the wisdom of the children. And I think as you do that, in that car ride or around your kitchen table, you're going to find something very insightful. And in asking your kids questions, you're kind of drawing them out and letting them wrestle with it. You're developing their character. You're developing their wisdom. Let me ask you to stand. I'm going to read two more things. One, I'm going to reread the story, this text in James chapter 3. I'm going to read from Eugene translation of the message, and then I'm going to read a closing prayer from the Book of Common Prayer for us. You want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom. Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean spirit and ambition is not wisdom. Boasting that you are wise is not wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise is not wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It is animal cunning, devilish cunning. Whenever you are trying to look better than others, you get the better of others. Things fall apart and everyone ends up at others' throats. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It's gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Our closing prayer from the Book of Common Prayer for this morning. Almighty and everlasting God, who has given unto us thy servants of grace by the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity, and in the power of the majesty to worship the unity, we beseech thee that thou would keep us steadfast